All right. Good morning, familia. Merry Christmas to you all. I'm going to be saying the same thing for all the Advent season. And part of the reason is because for us, Christmas is actually not just about December, but our entire lives. Uh, what we're going to be doing during this season, as has been our tradition, is we're going to be talking about uh, these four, I, I want to call it four longings we all have. And four longings that Jesus came to satisfy, which are the longings of hope, love, joy, and peace. But what we're going to do different, God willing, this year, if you will, is that we are going to be singing. We're going to be singing about hope, love, joy, and peace. So let me just ask this question really quick. How many of you guys enjoy singing both here in the West and in the East? All right, so how many of you guys hate singing so we can pray for you? This is what I mean by this. This is what I mean that we're going to sing uh, these, these themes is uh, I think that what we, the, the proper thing to do is for us to sing ourselves through Advent. See, I, I really think that there's something important, valuable about singing. See, I, I think that when the Bible talks about, the Bible calls believers to sing because the Lord deserves our praise and worship. Amen. See, I think the Bible calls us to sing because the Bible says that it fits him. Amen? Amen? See, I think that the Bible calls us to sing because the Bible simply commands us to sing. It doesn't say sing if you want to sing, watch other people sing, pretend like if you're singing. No, no, no. Sing. Amen? I want to hear the people in the East as well. Amen? See, we sing because we were created to sing. The whole creation sings to, the, to its creator. See, I think the Bible says that we ought to sing because we are compelled to sing. It is when we see the magnitude, the beauty, the, the perfection, the mercy, the grace, and the love of God that the most natural thing to do is to sing. Amen? See, I think that there's so many different reasons why the Bible calls believers to sing. But there's one reason that is oftentimes neglected and many times ignored, and why we are called to sing. See, I think that the Bible is going to make the argument that Christians, believers, sing because when we sing, not only our minds are engaged, but our emotions and our affections are engaged. In other words, believers sing because we sing ourselves into believing. Let me say that again. Believers sing because we sing ourselves into believing. Believing in the things we are proclaiming. If you were here last week, you probably heard, remember this illustration that Rob used, Pastor Rob used. Uh, he borrowed this illustration from Jonathan Edwards. He didn't say that it was from Jonathan Edwards, but it is from Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> he talked about the difference between knowing about honey Knowing the facts about honey and knowing honey because you have tasted it. You guys remember, remember that? There is a difference between us knowing about God and tasting God. See, I believe that the Bible says that part of the reason why we sing is not only so we sing with our minds. 
but that we taste with our affections. We sing ourselves into believing. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to become a worship leader for the next four weeks. I don't promise anything good, though. We're going to sing about hope, love, joy, and peace. Now, how is it that we're going to do that? Well, we're going to look at four different songs, which is four different psalms. Because psalms, the book of psalms, are songs. And even though, for your benefit, we are not, I'm not going to sing literally, we are going to dig into the scriptures so our hearts sing. All right, so I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say, get ready to sing. Go ahead. With that in mind, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Psalm 80 to talk about the concept of hope. And I'm going to be answering three questions. What's hope? Why hope? And why Advent? What's hope? Why hope? And why Advent? So if you are with me, can you please say, I'm here. Psalm 80, starting in verse 1. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Verse 4. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by, uh, by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision uh, to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Verse 7. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground uh, for it. And it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars uh, with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Verse 12. You have broken down its walls. So that, so that all who pass by picks its grapes. Bores the forest uh, ravaged, um, ravaged and, and insects from the fields feeds on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see Watch over this vine, the root your, your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Verse 16. Your, your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man who have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Let's read verse 19 together. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. Let's start with the question then, what's hope? You know, what's interesting about this psalm is that the word hope is nowhere to be found there. But the concept of hope is all over the place. So this psalm was written to uh, the tribe of Israel, to the tribes of Israel. And they're going through this uh, uh, difficult season. They're experiencing what we would call internal conflict. 
The tribes of God's people are being divided. Uh, God's people are hating one another. And because of that, God is bringing discipline to them. And we know that because verse 4, in verse 4, we can hear the cry of the psalmist. Look at what it says. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? Notice that the psalmist makes it extremely clear that the reason why these people are suffering is because God is angry with them. We see something similar in verses 5 and 6. It says, you have fed them, you have fed them with the bread of tears using a poetic language. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. Verse 6, you have made them an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Notice that he is being completely honest. He is saying, whatever we're going through, you have brought upon us. Now, from verses 8 to 11, the psalmist is using as a metaphor uh, to describe the Israelites the, the, the word vine. And he is remembering how God was taking care of this vine when he gave them freedom from the slavery of Egypt. And then he goes and describes all the blessings that the Israelites got because God gave them that freedom. But then he goes back to the description of pain in verse 12. Why have you broken down its wall so that all who pass by picks its grapes? Why have you broken down the walls? This is almost like the psalmist saying, all these blessings you have given us, everything that you did before, we are losing now. This is a psalm of lament, you know. That's the title that we will use for these kind of psalms. This is a complaining psalm, if you will. And notice that the psalm is that has no issues talking about a God that is a God of love, but at the same time is a God of discipline. Actually, the best way for us to understand it is that God disciplines in love. That he has no issues whatsoever seeing that God is perfectly 100% love, but that because he's a God that is 100% love, he must be a God of discipline. It is because God is a God of love that God is also a God of discipline. Actually, I'm going to make the argument that if God is looking at you and looking at me, how we are destroying ourselves and does not bring discipline, he stops being a loving God. Because what father or mother will look at their child destroying themselves and does nothing? That would be a monster. So just in, I'm saying that just in case there's someone here that thinks that if God is love, he could never be a God of discipline. And I want you to remember that because God is a God of love, he must be a God of discipline. Discipline is always like a wake-up call. Stop what you're doing. Now, if I stop the song there, it's kind of a depressing song. It's just about complaining. It seems like if the psalmist is only, what I, we're, I'm going to use the term, venting. Venting toward God, complaining toward God. 
And I actually think that the Bible is full of examples, especially in the book of Psalms, in which the Bible invites you to vent. But you, what you're going to see, though, is that the Bible never stops with venting. See, I think that the argument is that we need to vent because we need to process. We need to go to God and say whatever we feel because we need to process. That's part of the healing process. But what I, but, but I, but, but I don't want you to miss, though, is that the Bible never stops with just venting. Because most of the Psalms that talk about this always have the same pattern, follow the same pattern. There's room for venting and complaining and talking to God about everything that we struggle with. But it never stops just on that because at the same time, the psalmists are always remembering who God is and what God could do. I, I, I find that combination uh, amazing. It's almost like a, like a dance in which the person is being completely honest with the Lord. But at the same time, as the person is being completely honest with the Lord, he or she does not stop. With that, he always remembered who God is, how God is, what he has done, and what he could do. You know why I'm taking the time to explain that? Because I'm almost sure that in this room and in the East, there are two groups of people. Those that we will put in the category of traditional people and those that we will put in the category of modern people. See, the, the people with that traditional mentality, that's what I mean, with that traditional mentality would... would would hear about complaining, and they would say to somebody, you should never do that. Don't ever complain. Don't ever question. Don't bring your things before the Lord because God is God. You know what the problem is, is with that? That's not in the scriptures. Actually, there are things in the Bible that none of us would dare to say. So I think that the book of Psalms correct the thinking of some of the quote-unquote traditional thinking people. But at the same time, it corrects the thinking of some modern people in which think that just venting is the solution. And the Bible is going to bring this beautiful dance in which we get to vent, but we don't forget that God is God. In which we complain, but we don't forget what he has done, what he could do, and who he is. Now, the question is, do we see that in this text? Of course, we see it in the text. We see it in verses 1 and 2. Look at what it says. Hear us, that's the complaint, shepherd of Israel, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. Verse 2, awaken your might, come and save us. Notice that what's happening here, there is a complaint, but notice how the psalmist talk about God. He says, you are the ultimate shepherd. You are the one that as a shepherd cares, provides, loves, and protects. This is not hopeless complaining. He's talking to the one that he knows that is a God that never walks away. Because the shepherd never walks away from his sheep. He knows that the one he's praying to is the almighty, the one enthroned, the one that come to save. See, this psalm is a complaint. But it's a complaint that sees God as God. It's not just a complaint. 
We see it again in verse 4. How long is the complaint? Lord God Almighty. You know what the word Lord there means? You are a covenant God. How long covenant God? How long you going to allow this if you are the one that never walks away? How long covenant God that is powerful, almighty, not only is powerful to do what he wants to do, but he fights our fights. It is a complaint, but it's a complaint that sees God as God. And we have more examples of that. Look at verses 3, 7, and 14. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Verse 7, restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Verse 14, return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. You know, my two favorite words there are the words restore and return. Because even though they're different words, they complement one another. The word restore obviously means to fix to, to heal something that is broken. But in the original, the word restore can also be translated as returning or going back. So the psalmist is crying to the one that has the power to restore because he knows that by nature is a God that has the ability and wants to return and to go back. He is complaining, but he is complaining to the one that has the disposition to return and the power to restore. This is, not just, this is not just complaining. He knows who he's complaining to. He's not begging for something that God is not. He's not begging for something that God cannot do. He knows who he's talking to. He knows who, who God is and how God is. He knows who God is and what God likes to do. He's appealing to the one that is the ultimate shepherd, the one who by nature cares, protects, provides, and guides. He's praying to the one that he's appealing to the one that makes covenant with his people, never walk away, never walk away. He's appealing to the one who has the disposition to return and the power to restore. In the midst of his struggle, in the midst of their complaint, in the midst of their pain and suffering, they never forget that God is still God. Now, the question we got to ask the psalmist is this. How does this man know that at one point, God will return and God will restore? How does he know that? That's a good question. Not just because I say it, but because it's a good question. And the answer... It's in one phrase. Actually, it's a phrase that you hear almost all Sundays here. It's the phrase, make your face shine on us. You know what that means? Whenever the Bible uses the term face, it's to describe God as a personal God. It's a God that is not just present. It's a God that is present, but personally present. It's a God that loves in proximity. It's a God that feels what we feel, understands what we go through, and is actively present. 
What is interesting is that that is the description the Bible gives us about God in his relationship with his people. This is not a superficial relationship. It's not a transactional relationship in which we do our part and he does his part. No, the Bible doesn't talk about that stuff. When the Bible talks about God being present, it's always in terms of him being personal, always personal. Listen up. The psalmist knows that at one point God will return and will restore because God loves to love face to face. Not just present, but personal. Now, if you really want to understand this, I have a perfect illustration, I think. And how is it that you ought to understand this? Think about a time in which you are having a meal with a bunch of people. I mean, how many of you guys have ever had a meal like that? All right. The rest of you guys that never raised, never had a meal with anybody, I'm praying for you. I mean, that's sad. Think about a, a time in which you're having a meal with a bunch of people. And, and you can say that everyone is present, amen? Like having a conversation, having a blast, having a drink, water, because we're Christians. You know, you're having all that stuff. And, and, and you get to experience people's presence. But it doesn't mean that you are being personal with everyone there. You know who you're being personal with? The, per the people that are sitting next to you. I mean, if you like them. If you don't like them, you pretend that they don't exist. But if you like them, you turn around and you talk to them face to face. And there's something that is much more personal about that than just being present. This is precisely the reason why when we get into an elevator, everyone is looking to the front. Because if you turn around, which by the way, I have done that, and I love it. Makes people so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's part of the reason why we get into an elevator. We look over here because the moment you turn around, you get to see people's faces. And this presence thing becomes a very personal thing with people that you shouldn't be that personal. Does that make sense? And the psalmist paint, paints this picture of this amazing, powerful, almighty God that is eternal, that always existed, that is powerful and self-sufficient, that has chosen to be personal with his people. See, from a human perspective, that doesn't even make sense to me. Why would a God that needs nothing would choose to hang around with people like you and I? Why would God want to be face-to-face -face with someone like me? So then we have to ask the question, what does that have to do with hope? But that's what hope is. Hope is to believe and to trust that our God is so personal that he cannot stay away from his people. And that at one point, he always returns and always restores. That at one point, we know that our desires will be fulfilled, that things that are broken will be fixed, that everything that we so much desire, we will experience. 
Because that's who God is and that's how God is. Hope is being convinced, church, that everything that is broken will be fixed because of who God is and how God is. This is why the biblical definition of hope is so drastically different to the secular definition of hope. Let, let, me, let me give you a secular definition of hope, and I'm quoting um, something I found. It says, hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. A feeling of trust to want something to happen or to be the case. See, the secular perspective of hope from a, from a superficial um, uh, Superficially speaking, if you will, is very similar to the, to the definition of hope in the Bible. It's wanting things to get better. It's wanting restoration. It's wanting to have a happy ending. It's, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, per se. But if you notice, the difference is, is the object of that hope. See, the secular perspective is, a, is, is almost what I could call humanistic optimism. Is wanting and desiring for things to get better. It's almost like wishful thinking, hoping that things will get better because nature will make it happen, somebody's going to make it happen, or I'm going to make it happen. But for us as believers, our hope is not wishful thinking because the object of our hope is not nature, is not you, is not me, is not anybody. Our hope is rooted in one and one person alone, God. It is the conviction that because who God is and how he is, he will make all things new at one point and somehow, even if we're going through his good, faithful, and holy discipline. That's hope. Our hope is not in you. It's not in me, it's not in the government, it's not in the president, it's not in health, it's not in money. Our ultimate hope is only in the shepherd of shepherds, the one that has all authority and power, the almighty one, the one that is personal, the one that has the disposition to return and the power to restore, the one that is eternal, the one that will never walk away. Hope is to be convinced that God is God, and he does what, he was, what he's going to do. So the question for you is, do you have that hope? Now, that answers the first question. Now, I have to answer the second question. Why hope? In other words, why is it that as people, in general terms, we need hope? And I'm going to make the argument that all of us, even the people that will hear this sermon forever, have the same thing in common. We cannot live without hope. Actually, let me make the argument that everyone, by nature, is hopeful people. You know how I know that? Because there are the pessimists and the cynics. You be like, what? Watch here. You got to ask the question. How does a person become a pessimist? 
in which they see everything wrong or always something wrong. How is it that a person becomes a cynic? In which there's never a way out, like everything is, there's something, something off. How does a person become like that? And I'm going to make the argument that the only reason why, how people become a pessimist or a cynic is because they have been in a place and in a time in which they place their hope in the wrong thing or in the wrong person. And then they experience this, uh, they were dissolution by it. Church, this is part of the reason why I think that humanism is such a crazy thing to embrace. There's nothing that is more dangerous than become a humanist. There's nothing more dangerous than for us to think that things are going to get better just because. There's nothing more dangerous than to think that you have the power to, to change things and I have the power to change things. There's nothing more detrimental and dangerous to the human soul than to put our hope in ourselves. Actually, let me read this to you. This is, um, uh, it's called the, the Humanist Manifesto. This is uh, kind of the second edition. This was written in 1973, two years before I was born, and before you have to do the math, I'm 48. Some of you guys are right No, I'm 48. Relax. <laughs> this is why they said in 1973, listen up, the next century can be and should be the humanistic century. Dramatic, scientific, technological, and ever-accelerating social and political changes crowd our awareness. We have virtually conquered the planet, explored the moon, overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age, ready to move farther into space and perhaps inhabit other planets. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and culture development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with a with parallel opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. 1973. And it sounds good and inspirational. But as, as, as advanced as we are as human beings, we haven't been able to control our environments. We still don't have any power over earthquakes, tsunamis, and hurricanes. We haven't been able to conquer poverty. We continue to lose thousands and thousands of people to sickness. Humanity is still doing crazy things, violent, selfish, destructive things. And people are still not living abundant and meaningful life. Why? Because we have placed our hope in the wrong person. We cannot live without hope. But our hope would always be God. Who he is. And how he is. You know, this is some, a, a theological position, man, that it, that, it, that it changes the way you live completely. Listen up. It allows us to be optimistic, but not unrealistic. You want to see it? It allows us 
to recognize that we worship one that delights in restoration. But it allows us to see that we still live in a broken place. Therefore, we shouldn't have unrealistic expectations. You know, these plays are really clear when we think about, for example, relationships. Have you heard people talking about friendship? Man, I'm looking for a friend that would understand me and be with me and be there for me. And we could have fun together and all of that stuff. And I'm hearing that and I'm thinking, bro, you, you want a Jesus. <laughs> you do know that a person is limited and you are limited. How is it that you're going to do that? We see how that plays out, for example, in our relationship to the church. Right? So people come to a church, maybe not you, the ones that will come tomorrow, right? But you come to a church and you say, I'm looking for a church in which there is always a sense of community. A place in which the fruit of the Spirit are always displayed. That I get to be loved and welcomed and understood. I know I'm hearing that and I'm thinking, you do know that the church is full of sinners, I mean, I hope that we become that, but that's, that's putting your hope in the church, not in the God of the church. Isn't that true when we think about romantic relationship and marriage? All right, this is true even if you have been married for 60 years. We get married and we say things like, I'm looking for a person that likes the things I like, enjoy everything I enjoy, understand me without me having to say anything, know what I need before I say it. Likes what I think, requires me to change very little, never loses his or her temper, and when I'm going through my own personal problems, he's willing to put up with me without saying anything mean. And then believers are worse, because we have that list and we have extra stuff. Not only we want a person that fully believes in Jesus and trusts Jesus, but we want someone that prays five times a day that has all the spiritual gifts, that's a crazy good job, and that has memorized the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how are you going to make marriage work with those crazy expectations? This is not a joke. People have said, I did not sign up for this. And I'm like, yes, you did. <laughs> but your expectations were so out of whack. See, it is because we have this hope that we could be optimist. God will make things better. God will change things in his timing. But I also ought to expect complications. Think about your career, exactly the same thing. You know, when I became a teacher, I went to school and, uh, when I was a teacher, and, and they showed us all these videos about these Amazing classroom with 10 to 15 students and an amazing super calm teacher and everyone well behaved and you got all the resources you need, you know, and technology. And my first job, man, I step into a classroom with 35 crazy kids <laughs> and I don't have anything to work with them. And I said, good morning, students. And one kid in the corner goes, what's up? What? <laughs> and yet... Because God is who God is and does what God does. 
Probably some of my best times as a professional were in that classroom because I got to see what God could do through a believer in a secular place. Our hope changes our view of everything. So if we know what hope is, and we know that we cannot live without it, the last question is, what does that have to do with Advent? I'm glad you asked that question because I wrote an answer. Look at these two verses. Verse 3. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. Verse 7. Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. You know what's interesting about the word saved? That it could be translated in so many different ways in the Old Testament. It could be translated as to be set free, to be helped, to be rescued, to be delivered, to be defended, to be restored. So the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm highlight, highlighting that is because I want you to see that the word saved and restore actually support one another and complement one another. Meaning that for us to be fully restored, we need to be saved. And that when we are saved, then we get to be restored. You know what's amazing about this? Is that the Christmas story is about that. It's about Jesus being so personal that he had to come to save us. You know how I know that that's what this guy has in mind when he's writing this? Look at what happens in verses 17 and 18. Let your hand rest on the man at at your right hand. Doesn't that remind you of someone? The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. I think that we would all agree that he's not talking about any man. He's talking about Jesus in a prophetic way. Somehow, by the power of the Spirit, this man knows that not only God can restore, but how he was going to restore. He was going to restore in the person of baby Jesus. You know what's interesting? There's another song in the New Testament. A song, a song that Mary sang. You remember what happened after the angel told her everything that she was going to go through and who the baby was? These are the first words that came out of her mouth. My Lord, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices, rejoices in God, my Savior. How do we know that we have access and we can be dominated by the hope of the Bible. Because we have Jesus. That's why he came. He came. He became a human being to satisfy the longing of hope in our hearts. So this Christmas, you got to make sure that you sing a new song. A song of hope. A song that allows us to be optimistic and not unrealistic. Amen? That's great. Our beautiful Savior, we are always, we are super, super grateful because we don't have to guess who you are 
and how you are because that's clearly displayed in the pages of the scriptures. But not only we have it, Lord, in the pages of the scriptures, but we have it in the person of Jesus Christ. Because this is why he came. He came because you are a God that does not know how to love from away. From far away, you are a God that loves us in a personal way. That you are a personal God, so and so personal, that became a human being, that was born in a manger, that lived in our midst, but that also died and resurrected. So we know that the best is yet to come. So please, Lord, help us believe. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...